0: ASPA Therapeutics is a subsidiary of BridgeBio that was created to develop a gene therapy to treat Canavan disease, a progressive and fatal neurological disorder for which there is no approved therapy. Canavan is caused by a genetic mutation that results in an enzyme deficiency. We spoke to Eric David, CEO of ASPA, about the condition, the company's experimental gene therapy, and the benefits of BridgeBio's approach. Eric, thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: We're going to talk about Canavan disease, ASPA Therapeutics, and your efforts to develop a gene therapy to treat this rare brain disorder. Let's start with Canavan, though. What is it? How does it manifest itself, and how does it progress?
1: So, Canavan is one of these, it falls into a class of these cerebral leukodystrophies, so these these heartbreaking diseases um, that uh that affect children usually um, you know they manifest quite early on and in the case of canavan um, what happens is that uh you know for the first 2 3 months of life uh the child appears normal um, and uh and around 2 3 months often starts missing milestones or again in an even more heartbreaking way um sometimes children will achieve milestones and then lose them um and uh usually they end up with a sort of you know uh, it becomes clear that there's something neurologically that is not well and they usually end up with a diagnosis um by the age some it depends where they are in the world but sometimes by the age of 6 months or even older um and it is a disease that affects the, the deep white matter. So the subcortical white matter, which is, you know, it's a demyelinating disease. And so, um, the neurons lose their sheath, get demyelinated. You can, you know, it's very evident on MRI. The diagnosis, obviously, the more definitive diagnosis is by genetic testing, but it, it can be suspected based on the combination of, um, seeing this demyelination in the, Subcortical white matter on an MRI, and then doing a urine test for something called NAA. Um, NAA is um, a metabolic product that um, builds up in Canavan children because they're they're lacking uh, a key enzyme called aspartoacylase um, that converts NAA into two other intermediaries, and um, and when 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 the when aspartoacylase, which people call ASPA for short, when that enzyme is not there to do the conversion, NAA builds up. The 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 mechanism by which that buildup of NAA is toxic to the neurons and to the myelin on the neurons is, is not at all well understood, um, but uh, it it does seem to correlate with the disease. And unfortunately, it's a disease that affects both the the motor tracks um as well as, as as cognition, and so um you know the children if you look at the conventional literature, the historic um literature will basically say that the children um usually die by about ten years of age, you know I think supportive care is considerably better now, and so you do see between supportive care being better, and our understanding that there's sort of a spectrum of severity. Um, you, there are Canavan children in their 20s and even early 30s, um, but, um, but there's, there's absolutely no treatment for the disease.
0: You, you um, mentioned this is an enzyme deficiency. In many ways, it, it sounds like a, a lysosomal storage disorder. Is it similar in... The opportunities there? Yeah,
1: it, you know, there are, um, there are some, some similarities there, certainly in the phenotype, in, in how the disease manifests. Um, you know, the, the difference here is obviously this is something that is, um, you know, it's not, it's not lysosomal in origin. It's, it's actually an enzyme, um, that, uh, that sits within the nucleus. And, um unclear kind of what its what its role is it it is something however that is present in um virtually you know every tissue in the body and so it's interesting that it is present outside of the central nervous system as well as within the central nervous system certainly there are descriptions of the disease that there are, you know, some kidney manifestations, some intestinal, um, but it's the, that part of the disease is again really not very well characterized.
0: And in terms of prognosis, is there just a progressive loss of abilities in, until death?
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there, there, it, it really sort of peaks at some point, um, uh, usually by sort of, you know, Three to five years of age. What happens is the, the, the motor phenotype sort of starts out as low tone. Um, and then by about the age of, you know, between three and four years of age or, um, sometimes a little bit younger, um, it, it switches from low tone to spasticity. And that spasticity remains a, a real feature of the disease. Uh, as does the, the fact that a lot of parents report that their children are just markedly uncomfortable and and seeming to be in pain, but they you know it, most of them cannot you know can't talk and so cannot convey that. Um, but by you know the, the typical phenotype for for most patients is that they you know by about the age of four or five most of the damage has has set in and it doesn't really change very much from there. The the children are often unable to track with their eyes so they can't make eye contact. They have a really hard time, um, they often can make certain noises but usually can't speak, have a hard time with swallowing, a hard time with head control. Many of them cannot hold up their heads. Um, and it's, you know, for some, there's a, there's a macrocephaly component. So not only are their muscles not working for them to hold up their head, but it becomes even more challenging because their head is larger, uh, with respect to the neck and the rest of the body. And so that can be a feature.
0: How big Um, a population of patients are there and are patients generally diagnosed if they have this condition?
1: So yeah, you know they they usually eventually get a diagnosis, and these days it, you know, it it, it's it's faster and faster now that the genetic tests are more readily available, Um, and um, and because there's more awareness of the disease, I I think it's it's it tends to be picked up faster these days. Um, Canavan has an incidence of about one in ten thousand in the Ashkenazi Jewish population one uh, in 100,000 in the general population, and then a, a prevalence in the U.S. and EU of about 1,000 patients.
0: It's an enzyme deficiency. I, I take it enzyme replacement therapy isn't a very practical approach to treating the condition.
1: Is not a very practical approach, is that?
0: Well, I, I imagine, one, it's a CNS disease, and while you can deliver a, an enzyme into the brain, I assume this would be a, a chronic therapy that would have to be Delivered through the lifetime of the patient,
1: what, what yeah, is- and, and 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 just getting the enzyme to the right place in the right amount, right? That tends to be a, a real part of the the, the problem, um, and the very fact alone that we simply don't fully understand what role aspartoacylase plays, and um, so we know the enzyme, uh, we know the reaction that it catalyzes, but we don't really understand why you know why when NAA builds up that becomes toxic somehow to to neurons or is that just a, a convenient biomarker for um for uh, another toxicity
0: what makes gene therapy uh an attractive approach for a condition like this um
1: very much what you were getting to which is that um unlike just simply trying to get the enzyme in there and get it to the right place which you know is is often you know impossible when you are you know trying to get an enzyme sort of into you know not just into a particular tissue but into um a particular compartment in the cell of that tissue right that that becomes extremely challenging. Um, the only way to really do that is to have the gene expressed in the cell, and therefore the cell um, is able to uh, to translate and transcribe the the gene and actually make the protein itself, and then the protein gets to the place in the cell where it needs to be. Um, so that's what makes gene therapy so attractive. It's one of these it's one of these diseases where you know tissue replacement. Cell-based therapy or enzyme replacement just simply isn't going to work.
0: The gene therapy you're working on was was licensed from the University of Massachusetts Medical School. H- how did this come about? How did Aspa become formed and and come to license this?
1: It's a, it's a great it's a great question. Um, you know, uh, we were um, we have a collaboration on another gene therapy. Um, with Dr. Guangping Gao at UMass, and Guangping is—I um, will say—Guangping is one of the most humble great scientists that, that I've ever met. Um, and he he cloned the aspartoacylase gene in 1993, uh, and then um, and then helped develop some of the mouse models of, of the disease and uh and has been working on a gene therapy for the disease ever since basically and um you know he he describes it as you know his the focus of his professional life which is amazing because you know um he's also one of the fathers of AAV gene therapy and discoverer of uh, several phenotypes several of the serotypes so um Um, he was passionate about this disease. And when we started working with him, um, on another disease and talking to him about what else he was working on, this, this came up. And, uh, and so we, you know, we immediately took a look at the disease and thought, you know what? This is, yes, it's a, it's a small population. And it's, um, it's, you know, this is before the, um, before Avexis was, was acquired. When we looked at it and, um, and a lot of people were not looking at indications this small. And we looked at it and said, you know what, there's, there's, there's nothing out there for this disease. Um, and there, there's little on the horizon. And so, you know, it's the right thing to do for patients. And even if it ends up being a smaller indication and, you know, it's something that's not as profitable, as we hope, even if we break even on it, the whole reason that, our model, the Bridge Bio model, exists is to have a portfolio of rare diseases um, where larger indications will balance out smaller indications, and you are and you are able to um, to really uh, get to diseases that other people aren't aren't going to work on and are dismissing as um, as you know not not tenable. Um, so we were you know, we were really excited to take it on to work with Guangping. You know, I should say there are other pioneers in, in this field. There's a, a woman named Paolo Leone and um there there are other people, Ruben Madelon and, and others who have really helped pave the way in this disease over the years. Um but um but it's uh you know and and it's you know it's it's a very compelling patient population and group of parents. You know, there are actually for such a small disease, there are in the United States alone three different patient advocacy groups that are all very active. And um it was really something where we thought, gosh, this is just how could we not take this on?
0: You mentioned Bridge Bio. Perhaps we should take a step back and explain the relationship with Bridge Bio and the business model here. Aspa is a, a subsidiary of BridgeBio. Do, does it exist solely to develop this gene therapy?
1: It does, yeah. And this is this is sort of really getting into the interesting, um, interesting aspect of what BridgeBio is. Um, so BridgeBio was founded by Neil Kumar and um, and others, uh, and a lot of the idea behind the the founding of bridge bio was was based on neil and other people's experience trying to develop drugs for rare diseases in the typical venture capital model and just you know the economics just don't work out if you you know if you're trying to develop a drug that only affects for, for a disease that only affects 75 people in the world and you have to put together a company of 75 people to do that it's just, it's hard to make the economics work. And so the thought behind Bridge Bio was can we can we leverage scale to develop rare disease drugs in a different way? And so the what the idea that the founders came up with was to say, okay, what if we created a holding company that people could invest in? And that holding company only invested only essentially owned assets that were rare diseases or rare oncology. Um, and it, you know, and the holding company basically provided a lot of the shared services, you know, legal and HR and finance and, uh, certain aspects of regulatory. And so that way each of the subsidiaries could keep their sizes smaller and really focus on the science and, The idea was that each, you know, BridgeBio itself, as I said, is just a holding company and each of the programs in BridgeBio are wholly owned subsidiaries. So each subsidiary represents a single disease and a single potential product for that disease. And the idea is, as I said before, that you would balance out some of the very small opportunities where you know, you have incidences of one in two hundred thousand, one in three hundred thousand. Um and you you balance those against some of the larger rare diseases where um the incidence is, is is a good deal larger. And um and and therefore you're you're able to have more more leeway to say, you know what, I'm gonna take this disease on because it is the right thing to do for patients and there's no other work going on. And I will tell you that when I was recruited to Bridge Bio, um, uh, that was a very attractive proposition. And now in reality, when I sit in investment committee meetings and there are actual discussions of, hey, you know, if we don't take this, this program on, there, there's nothing else out there that anybody's working on. Like we, we should take it on despite challenges because it is it is the right thing to do. And it's incredibly refreshing to be somewhere where that is a discussion that happens at an investment committee meeting.
0: Well, just to understand the, the business model more fully, does ASPA raise any money to fund its operations or is everything funded through Bridge Bio?
1: So everything is generally funded through Bridge Bio. It's not that some of the subsidiaries cannot have other funding sources and other partners, um, and that's one of the great things about it. Is there's a lot of flexibility. Bridge Bio um, generally maintains operating control, and so you know, um, so has to own uh, you know above a majority percentage. But you know, we're open to partners, um, and uh, you know, but Bridge Bio will, for for most of the subsidiaries, provide the funding, and the model is. You know, again, it's, it's really saying, look, we're gonna focus on what we think our strengths are, which, um, which are really around taking great early stage science, whether it's coming out of academia or maybe out of other pharmacos or biotechs that are, you know, are, are not pursuing certain programs, and taking them into sort of late clinical, whereby, you know, by the time they're in late clinical, if, if they're bearing fruit, you know, someone else may have the expertise more than us to commercialize it and build it to scale, but we can, you know, we're open to a variety of different exits, whether that's IPO and doing it ourselves or whether it's, um, you know, selling it wholesale to a pharmaco, uh, doing some sort of other partnership. I think one of the nice things about this model in the current business environment is, you know, following biotech and pharma for, the last several years, as as you know, one of the things that pharmacos are so keen on is not having R&D on their books. And so, you know, this helps them externalize R&D by having single assets that they can just pluck out and acquire. Instead of acquiring a whole company and winding down the products that they don't want or that don't fit with them, winding them down or selling them off to other. they can pluck out just the product that they're interested in and so it's um it's a very timely model as well in that way
0: if you think about the rare disease ecosystem and if you had a traditional biotech company at one end uh an accelerator in the middle and uh, a venture capital firm at the other end where would you sit bridge bio
1: it's funny because i mean it's with those three points it's really kind of a hybrid of all of them in a way right it's it's more than an incubator in that we're not just doing incubation funding it's not just a few hundred thousand dollars um, to see if you can get to the proof of concept um you know in in some animal model um, and it's um and it's like a venture firm in you know in that it provides funding, but unlike venture firms you know it'll it it's it's the parent company basically just funding through some you know some point in in the clinic um, by itself for the most part, which again is not typical of venture these days. Um, and it again, it's it's like a biotech company in that the subsidiaries are doing the operating, and so there's a real operating element to it. Um, but unlike a biotech company in that the parent bridge Bio overall is really, um, it is really just an investment vehicle. It's a holding company. So it, it really has aspects of all three of those, um, which I think is, is what makes it a, a very unique model. And the fact that, in addition to that, it, it is focused on rare diseases and rare oncology makes it, I think, even more unique.
0: And if, if I'm not mistaken, you actually wear more than one hat. You, you, you oversee all of the gene therapy programs, throughout that Bridge bio universe, is that correct?
1: I do, and that's another wonderful thing about the model from from my perspective is, um, so I oversee all the gene therapy assets, and also, you know, it's the same management team and, uh, and overlap in the scientific teams as well across all the programs. And so it allows us to, you know, to really have a certain scale where we can take on multiple programs um, and leverage the same team across them um, and uh you know, I can also tell you that just working with academic partners it makes it um, it 's something that our academic partners love because they they get full access to a team that 's not just the non clinical scientist it 's the manufacturing folks and it 's um the b d folks and it's uh you know it 's the regulatory folks it, it's it 's a it's a full team that's engaged with them, and, and that's very refreshing um, versus this sort of typical sponsored research agreement, where the academic is typically just interacting with some, you know, a couple of R&D scientists
0: at the company. Let me turn back to the gene therapy. Where are you in, in development at this point, and what do you know about it from the studies you've done to date? So, you know, so we, we are fortunate
1: in that so much good work was done on this product, project by uh, Guangping Gao and uh, his colleague Dominic Gessler and their whole team there at, at UMass. Um, and uh, so even before we acquired it, they had um, generated a great deal of data in the, the two different animal models for Canavan disease. And I won't belabor you with sort of why there are two different models and how they're different. But, um, but suffice it to say, they generated data taking these, for example, in one of the animal models, the, the animals, the Canavan knockout mice will die within about four weeks of birth if they don't receive any, any treatment. And, uh, and with the gene therapy, they have data out to a year. And not only do the mice survive, but they thrive and they, Develop, um, a, a normal, um, a, a normal motor phenotype and sometimes even, you know, a very, even more robust motor phenotype. Uh, and their, their brains go, you can actually do MRIs on them and, and follow the, the demyelination becoming remyelinated. Um, and it, it's remarkable. And so they have tons of data that they had generated before we came in, and then they have some, you know, there's some basic safety data that comes out of those mouse studies. The real work for us now is to look at some larger animal studies to do a couple of different things. One is to determine the best way to deliver the drug. So there we think, is it, you know, should we be giving it IV, which is easier to deliver, but goes to the, the entire body, including the CNS, because the serotype we're looking at uh, for the virus AAV9 has good penetration into the CNS. Um, or should we look at something that's more directed to the central nervous system, like intrathecal, um, or intracranial ventricular? So getting it directly into the cerebrospinal fluid through either of those routes. And again, won't go into details of why one would think, you know, one is better than another. But they're, they're all worth exploring. And so we have to do some, some studies in large animals to really compare those different routes of administration to one another and determine the best, um, the best approach. The, um, the second thing we have to do in, in large animals is get a good sense of the high end of the dose and the low end. Um, and then also look at biodistribution at those different doses and those different routes of administration and make sure that not only that biodistribution data are we getting into the right parts of the central nervous system, the deep cortical white matter uh, and other places in the CNS that we think may be relevant, but also to look at off-target effects. You know, what happens when you take this gene um, that you're putting in a virus and you're potentially injecting IV and it's going to every cell in the body? um, What happens when you overexpress this gene in your kidney or... Um, your testicles or ovaries or your liver. Um, and so that's something we have to look at as well. So that, that's the work we're doing along with the other major thing, as you know, for gene therapy is getting manufacturing up and running, which is a very intensive and specialized process. And so with all of that, we hope um, to have the data on the manufacturing side and on the non-clinical animal model side uh, to be able to um, file for an IND by the end of 2019. And in parallel with that, we're working with some of the best clinicians in the world on this, um, Florian Eichler at, at Mass General, Heather Lau at NYU, and at in Hamburg, um, to really try to get a sense of um, the the natural history of the disease and and do a natural history study to get to get um, uh sense of, you know, the clinical endpoints that we would look at, but then also to, um, uh, to, have, um, to have them be the first sites for a clinical trial.
0: Is there a good sense of the clinical path forward here to what would be required to move towards an approval? There,
1: there is. I mean, you know, the FDA has been, you know, with, with gene therapy and with these rare CNS diseases, they, they've really um, just become... So great to work with uh, and um, over the last several years they've gotten so much experience in gene therapy and in trying to you know push rare diseases faster, so we have a good sense from regulators both in the u s and the eu of of what's required. Um, we also have you know, people who have blazed a trail ahead of us like of um, and uh, you know and and seen what was required there um, that um yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, we certainly hope and believe, based on what we've seen and interactions we've had with regulatory advisors, that we'd be able to take, you know, a, a a fast path, you know, not just breakthrough and and all of that stuff, but hopefully just, you know, have a trial that's, you know, small numbers of patients and really sort of a phase one, two, three, um, and get this through clinic Um Fast because, uh, you know, what we're hoping for is just to get this to um, as many patients as possible, as, as fast and as safely as possible.
0: Eric David, CEO of Aspa Therapeutics. Eric, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thank you, Daniel. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at Danny at